not even checking out the hook while the DJ revolved it. I mean, you just, you couldn't do it. That's all right. Ten of y'all got that. That's all right. I love it. What's one thing that, that people say to you when you're, you're in a problem? You, you've got a big decision to make, and, and you're not sure exactly what to do next. What's, what's one of the things that people from time to time will say to you? They'll say this. They'll say, hey, just sleep on it. Right? Just, just sleep on it. Well, a recent report from Harvard Medical School says that sleeping on it is a real thing. It seems that when we're asleep, the prefrontal cortex gets shut down. And that reportedly is the area of your brain that does the executive decision-making. So if the prefrontal cortex shuts down while you're sleeping, that means your brain is able to freely associate, to process things in the background. One researcher says that what happens is then... You wake up the next morning and you say, I don't want to take that job in Iowa. Or you say, yay, Iowa. You know, you're not really sure. I'm I'm concerned that the only thing you're going to remember from this sermon is yay, Iowa. But that's okay. If you remember that, that's, that's fine. It's something. I don't know how the prefrontal cortex works. I don't know if you should take that job in Iowa. But I do know that there is a way for us to rise above our problems to rise above the difficult decisions, the the things in life that can weigh us down. There is a way for us to do that. Every difficult moment, every difficult problem, every sleepless night, there is something that we can do, something great that we can do, something that we can pursue to rise above. So what is that? What is that that great thing that we can pursue? What is this path of greatness, so to speak, with problem-solving and decision-making? Let's see if we can find out. James chapter 4, beginning with verse 8, James says this, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Well, there you go. Inside of a Hallmark card for you, right there. The path to greatness... The path to rising above our problems begins with washing our hands. Well, kind of. James is writing to Jewish Christians. Okay? These were early Christians. These were people that grew up in church. And what does he call them? He says, hey, you sinners. Now, that word in the New Testament is normally used to refer to people who were separated from God people who were lost or or unsaved. But James uses it here to talk to the church-going folks. Now, why would he use yo sinners with church-going folks? Well, he's trying to help them see that their sin against God is dirty and nasty and rebellious. Now, if we're honest, we really don't feel that way about our sin. Like, we really don't. If we're honest, most of the time we're like, hey, if my sin doesn't get on the news, no big deal, right? I mean, I'm not as bad as those criminals, so that means my sin is not as bad. We we tend to dress it up a little bit. Now, we get this honest, okay, because our first parents were the same way, right? Our first parents, they they were confronted with sin, and what did they do? They they played dumb, and they played the, the blame game, and we do the same thing. When we're confronted with sin, we'll, we'll play dumb or we'll play the blame game, you know. We'll be defensive. We'll blame our spouse or we'll blame our kids or we'll blame our parents. We'll blame our friends. We'll blame the, the 
pastor or the politician or the doctor or, or anybody else we can find in life. We'll, we'll play the blame game. We'll look for ways to steer away. But as Christians, we shouldn't do that. As Christians, we have this unbelievable privilege that no one else in the world has if they're not a Christian. See, as believers, we get to do this one radical thing that changes every moment of our life. And what is that one radical thing? We get to own our sin. That's what we get to do. Greg Moore said it this way, Christians alone can look our sin square in the face and own it, confess it, apologize for it, because we alone know a Savior who died to forgive it. See, we can own our sin because we know who has dealt with our sin. So, just just a little quick inventory right now of, of your attitude, kind of Where's your attitude this week? Where's your attitude this weekend? Where's your attitude this morning? Where are you at with with things in your life or things in the world or things in the church or things or wherever you are? How's your attitude doing? What are you sinfully angry about? What are you sinfully afraid of? What are you pouting about? What are you apathetic about? Whatever it is, whatever's going on, as believers, we can own it. We can own it. We can confess it. We can apologize for it because Jesus died to set us free from it. And not just us, right? When we own our sin, when we confess our sin, when we apologize for our sin, when we apologize without having to be asked to apologize for our sin, when we do those things, it impacts everybody around us. In a sense, not only are we freed from the consequences and and the the weight of those sins, so to speak, but we are able to free the people around us from having to deal with our sin as well. In a sense, not perfectly, but it's there. So we should make it our practice to wash our hands. (laughs) I mean, we're not perfect. We're we're all going to fail, but this is something we should do. We should wash our hands few years ago, sometime in the last decade, one of my buddies who's a doctor in another part of the state, he called me and said, hey, the hospital's having this contest for a new wash your hands slogan. And, and if we come up with the right one and a cool picture and everything, we win a TV. Come on, let's do it. I was like, all right. So I put together some pictures and we came up with some slogans. We didn't win. Um, but I thought it'd be exciting, you know, going to the hospital and seeing my poster in the elevator. Yeah, that'd be great. But I didn't win. We didn't get the TV. But one thing that I realized in that time was the reminder that you know, medically speaking, washing your hands is kind of a big deal. You know, it's, it's a good thing to do. So for your practical health and for your spiritual health, I'm not encouraging you to waste a lot of soap and water unnecessarily, but we need to learn to wash our hands. It's a good thing. And here's what we can do when we wash our hands. When you wash your hands, just let that be that moment where you say, God, what do I need to own right now? What do I need to own? Who, who is I mean to in my family today? Who is I rude to at school today? Whose head did I bite off at work today? What, what is it that I'm frustrated? What is it, God, right now as I'm washing my hands? What do I need to wash my attitude of? What do I need to clean up in my life? We need to wash our hands, confess our sins more. 
But it won't really do anything, right? I mean, washing our hands, confessing sin. I mean, if people started doing that, it wouldn't have any impact on anything, right? I mean, nothing would change in the White House or the State House or the Church House or your house if we started confessing sin, right? Everything would stay the same, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Hopefully you're hearing my sarcasm. Can you imagine what would happen just in our church, in our homes, just the homes connected to this room and those watching online? Can you imagine what would happen if we became a people that started washing our hands and owning our sin? Can you imagine And imagine if that began to to spread to other places. Imagine if that started, you know, think about it. Some of us, I'm not saying me yet, but some of us may be in politics one day, right? And and if we're washing our hands at home and we're washing our hands at church, we're going to wash our hands wherever we're serving in politics, wherever we're serving in our job, whatever school we're working in, it will become the habit. James is calling us to wash our hands He's calling the church sinners so that they will be able to come clean and be able to impact their hearts, their minds, their souls, and the hearts and minds and souls of people around them. But he also calls them double-minded. Now, that doesn't mean they were multitaskers, all right? That's, that's not the notation here. It's, it's a person that has two souls, okay? They kind of have a, a soul that leans toward the ways of God, and then they have a soul that leans toward the ways of man. It's kind of like a flip-flopping thing. You know, God's way this minute and and man's way, the world's way the next minute. Now, thankfully, none of us are like that, right? I mean, we always just do whatever God tells us to do, right? Well, see, we're flip-floppers too. You know, we're we're double-minded too. We we struggle with these things. Being double-minded with God is kind of like taking the Bible for a test drive, you know? We might follow after it if we like how it feels and, you know, if we like how it drives. If we enjoy the experience, then we might follow after God's wisdom. And some people are very curious about the Bible to the point that they like reading the Bible and studying the Bible as long as it doesn't create any suffering in their lives or as long as it doesn't create any inconvenience. I think I've shared with you before about my dear friend who's with the Lord now, but years ago, I was teaching a Bible study to a bunch of young adults and college students, and, and I was doing it, uh, I think we were in First Peter. He's like, man, I love First Peter. He goes, but don't ever teach from Job. <laughs> I was like, okay. He goes, yeah, I don't like Job, so don't ever bring up Job. I don't want to hear anything from Job. And I was like, well, you know, I kind of got to do that. It's in the Bible, right? And he's like, yeah, I don't like it, though, you know? Sometimes we approach that, you know? We like the Bible verses that make us feel good, but we don't like the ones that step on our toes. But the reality is this, that's just not how the math works. This is what Jesus said in Luke nine twenty three: If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. To follow after Christ is a total and complete commitment. It doesn't mean we're perfect. We'll still flip-flop. But flip-flopping doesn't need to be something we enjoy or we're comfortable with. We need to be more comfortable, more committed to following after Jesus. And what that means is this. We follow Jesus on the days when our lunch is good and when our lunch is, is bad. We follow Jesus on the days when our family is terrific and when our family is terrible. We follow Jesus on the days when our health is happy and on the days when our health is horrible. We follow Jesus on the day when our politicians win 
and when our politicians lose. We follow Jesus on the days when the gas prices are low and when the gas prices are high. We don't stop. We keep following and we keep following and we keep following. As the old hymn says, no turning back, no turning back, no turning back. And I would say this too, according to what we see in Scripture, no turning to the side either. Just fix your eyes on Jesus. That's the call of our life. We're not perfect. Okay, we're, we're not going to do this. But we do need to be in the good fight of being single-minded instead of being double-minded. Double-minded causes problems. Double-minded ruins lives. And what advice does James give for the double-minded? He says to purify your heart. Now, that sounds a little harder than washing your hands, right? <laughs> I mean, how are you going to get a shower puff on your heart? You know, how do you, how do, you do that? Well, James felt like it was important for us to remember that he was not accidentally using this language. Remember, he's writing to people who grew up in church. He's writing to church-going folks. These folks would have known the Old Testament. They would have heard the Old Testament stories and the Old Testament teachings. So his language is on purpose. He's bringing their minds back to pictures, one maybe particular, from Exodus chapter 30. Moses was receiving instructions from God about how some of the church leaders were supposed to do things. And Exodus 30 says this, Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet when they enter the tent of meeting. They shall wash with water so that they will not die. Well, that's a whole other motivation for washing your hands, right? I mean, you think Aaron and his boys had a reason to wash their hands and their feet? You think they had a reason to obey this command from God? If they didn't, the instruction was they were going to die. Now, that sounds a little harsh, right? I mean, they have to wash their hands and their feet to go to church? Come on. God sounds like he's just being mean. He's not being mean. He's not some psycho parent with rules that are impossible to follow. Our first year of marriage, my wife was a scrub tech in the operating room's at UNC Medical Center in Chapel Hill. So every night at dinner, I heard these fascinating, disgusting stories of whatever she did in surgery that day. And I listened and smiled and tried not to chew while she was talking. But she also talked about the meticulous ways that you have to prepare yourself for surgery. It's an amazing thing. It's like this 20-minute process of washing your hands and making sure all of the instrumentation is sterile. But there's a reason behind that. All of that hand-washing that all of those people do before surgery, it's for your good. That hand-washing and, and the sterilizing of that equipment, it is to protect you from infection and to protect you from danger. Aaron and his sons, they were uniquely going into the temple to spend a unique time in the presence of God as a way of interceding on behalf of the people. In essence, they were surgeons going in to do things for the people. And so they needed to have clean hands. They needed to be prepared. Why? Why did their hands need to be clean? Well, I don't understand all the quantum physics behind it, but there is something about being in the presence of God, in the unique presence of God, in the way that they were going to be, that is dangerous. There's something about God. There's, there's this awe, this majesty, this glory. He is holy, holy, 
holy and no one else is. To, to be in His presence, to be close to Him, it, it requires this reminder of who you are with, who you're in front of, what you are doing. So they needed to wash their hands as a reminder that they were with the God of the universe. They needed to clean their hands as a reminder that their lives impacted the lives of other people. They needed to wash because they were honoring God and they were serving others. James uses that hand-washing language to try to get a pretty good point across to us. He's trying to help us see that our sin matters. Undoubtedly, he's challenging the church a little bit because there seemed to be some folks that were going to church on Sunday. You know, they were watching online. They were, they were listening. They were singing. But then they were on purpose living like the devil the rest of the week. And so he seemed to be wanting to get their attention by saying, hey, you're being sinful. You're being double-minded. And he wants them to see, look, if you don't clean your hands, if you don't wash your hands, if you don't wash your heart, then you are by default going to be living in such a way that you might be calling your salvation into question. I mean, over the last 30 years, I over and over again, I've, I've heard so many times in so many different churches, churches I, I grew up in or the church I grew up in or churches I've attended or churches I've served at, there's always that conversation where somebody says, you know, I don't know if they're a Christian or not. I don't know if he's a Christian. I don't know if she's a believer. Why? Because the outside seem to say the opposite of just sitting in the pew on Sunday. But it's not just the outside that matters, right? Repentance is an inside change that reflects on the outside. And so that's why James says, hey, you got to look at your heart. You know, you got to clean and wash and purify your heart. Well, how do you do that? How do you, how do you deal with your heart? Well, he gives us one way in verse 9. He says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Well, that's why I come to Holland Avenue. They tell me to be miserable there. That's why I show up. What's he getting at? What's he trying to help us see? Because see, someone might say, well, look, I, I thought this sermon was about solving problems. I thought this was about helping me with big decisions in life. Now... Now I'm told I can't even laugh. I gotta stop laughing. I gotta be miserable. What gives? But don't get distracted with the words. All James is really saying is this don't laugh your sin off. Sin's not something to laugh off, sin's not something to blow off. Sin is something as believers we should be miserable over. We should be miserable over our sin. We shouldn't just listen to sermons or Bible studies or sing Christian songs or, or sing Christian songs in our car and even at church. And, and, and we're engaged with all of these Christian things, but then we kind of walk away and don't apply what we've heard. Especially, you know, those sermons where, you know, you're listening to the sermon and you're like, man, I hope so-and-so is listening to this, you know. I hope so-and-so is watching this stream today, you know. Or maybe the person next to you, your elbow, and hey, you listening to this, you know. And, and what we do is we think, oh, well, this is all for other people. And, and we ignore that God's truth is for us. We forget to be miserable about our own sin. But it matters. Our sin matters. How we act, how we think, 
how we respond, what we complain about, what we're apathetic about, those things matter. And it should bother us when what we think and say and do, when our attitude is dishonoring to God. It should bother us. It should make us miserable. What James is saying here is that there's church-going people that talk bad about the pastor and the staff and other people in the church. There's church-going people that will blow up on social media over someone who disagrees with them socially or politically. There's church-going people that don't give time or money or energy or effort to the ministry of the church. There's church-going people that don't give time or money or energy or effort to engaging with lost people or or serving the needs of the poor and the needy. There are church-going people like this, and James says, if that's you, if that's us, he says, you need to be miserable. You need to get miserable about your sin. And why should we? Why should we be miserable about our sin? W.M. Taylor said this, True repentance hates the sin, not merely the penalty. See, if we're honest, this is how we usually function. We're going to cruise until we're caught. You know, We're just going to keep doing our thing until we get caught. And, and that's the opposite of what we should be doing as believers. We should be owning our sin without having to be told we need to own our sin. So he says, true repentance hates the sin, not merely the penalty, but then he says this, and it hates the sin most of all because it has discovered and felt God's love. We should be miserable over our sin because we have discovered the love of God. We have felt the love of God. The love of God has captured us. It's compelled us to say, I hate my sin because I love God. So if we're having a sin issue, we're really kind of having a love issue. We've, we forgot to love God first and most. We should be miserable over our sin. We should thirst and hunger for the love of God, not thirst and hunger for our own sin. Our sin is no laughing matter. Our sin needs to be something that we hate. Our sin, not in part, but the whole, needs to be something that we are miserable what do we do next? If, we're, if we get to the point where we start to be miserable of our sin, so we're washing our hands, you know, we're owning our sin, we're, we're beginning to be miserable over that sin, what do we do next? James says this in verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Wash your hands, be miserable over your sin, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. Turn to God. To humble yourself in the presence of the Lord means that there's this thing where you make God the center of your universe. You you put yourself underneath God. And why should you do that? I love these thoughts from A.W. Pink. Being infinitely elevated above the highest creature, God is the most high Lord of heaven and earth. Subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as He pleases, only as He pleases, always as He pleases. None can thwart Him. None can hinder Him. That's why we wash our hands. But that's why we wash our heart. That's why we're miserable about our sin. That's why we come into the presence of God and we humble ourselves there because there's no one like Him. There's, there's no one like God. There will never be anyone like God. 
We humble ourselves under the Lord because He is the center of the universe. The story is told of a man who had just been elected to the British Parliament. He took his family to London for the day to take a tour of, of the city, and they were in Westminster Abbey, and, and his eight-year-old daughter was standing there, and she was just looking around at this magnificent church, and she was just awestruck. So he said, sweetie, what are you, what are you thinking about? And she says, well, Daddy, I was just thinking, when you're at our house, you are so big. But in here, you are so small. See, to humble ourselves before the Lord as we, we get this picture that He is God and, and we are not. That He is holy, holy, holy. He is other, 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 and, and we are not. To make God the center of the universe is the call of the life of a believer. And the reason we should make God the center of our universe is because He is the center of the universe. He is God and there is no other. The path to true greatness is a path of humility. The path of true greatness is a path of making God the center of your universe. But sometimes we go, I'll do that later, no big deal. You know, or that doesn't apply to me at work. That doesn't apply to my life at school or home. That's, that's good language for church, but I don't really need to do that anywhere else. Rich Cather said this, If you make it your life's aim to promote yourself, you will eventually find yourself in trouble. You may make it through your whole life and not find yourself in trouble, but you'll find yourself in trouble eventually. He goes on, It may not be in this lifetime but one day when you stand before Almighty God, you will realize your mistake. See, the world tells us to walk into the banquet of God and to say, hey, where's the best seat in the house? But the gospel calls us to walk into the banquet of God to lower our head and to whisper, how in the world did I get invited? See, the world will never push us toward humility. The world will never push us toward humbling ourselves before the God of the universe, but the gospel will. And that's why we have to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves because Fox News will not preach the gospel to you. And CNN will not preach the gospel to you. And NBC will not preach the gospel to, to you. And most of your talk radio shows will not preach the gospel to you. And sadly, there are some churches that will not preach the gospel to you, but you can preach the gospel to yourself. Because when you preach the gospel to yourself, you will keep dropping back and saying to yourself, how did I get invited? How is it that I'm here? Now again, you might be saying, hey, I thought this was supposed to be solving the problems in my life. I thought this was supposed to help me decide if I'm going to take that job in Iowa. Where's the payoff here? You're telling me to be miserable. You're telling me to hate my sin. Where's, where's the payoff here? Look at the last part of verse 10. James says this. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Finally, the payoff. If I will humble myself before God, I'm going to get that promotion. I'm going to get into that really good school. My grades are going to be okay. I'm going to find a great spouse. I'm going to have a great job. Everything's going to be great. Not exactly. Those things might happen. But that's not really the, the theme of being exalted by God. I love how Tony Evans says it. 
James is saying that God will exalt you above your problem. Above that which is keeping you down and making you a spiritual prisoner. So that's the problem solving. That's that's the decision making. It's not that the problem will magically disappear. It's not that the decision will magically become an answer. It's just that whatever's happening in that moment, to humble ourselves in the presence of God means that God will exalt us over the problem. He will lift us up out of the miry clay. He will help us begin to think differently, to see differently. He'll calm our hearts in a way that can't be explained. Now, I know that sounds like mystical fairy tale land, but, but it really is true. I'll give you an example from my life yesterday morning. So yesterday morning, uh, it's just one of those mornings, you know, just one of those mornings. And, and I found myself uh, at the sink at my house and I was just ticked off. I was ticked off about 97 different things probably in that moment. And praise God for Russ and Jane Atkinson. They were a couple in my wife's home church. And when we left to go to seminary, Russ and Jane gave me this little plaque with Isaiah 26.3 on it. And it says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Sometimes, when you're standing at the sink and you're ticked off, <laughs> you can't rise above on your own. You're not going to solve the problem by yourself. You're not going to always make the, the right decision. But you can rise above in that moment, and God has purposed his word to do that. Now, did it just magically change my attitude immediately? I said a Bible verse, and birds flew in the windowsill, and you know the skies parted. No, no. But I will say this. By the time I was finished at the sink, my attitude was a little different, you know. And by the time I got to the end and, and washed my hands and kept saying that verse over and over again, my attitude was a little different. All my problems didn't go away. But God in his kindness through Russ and Jane and through the truth of Isaiah, he just, he helped me rise above the problem. There's an old saying that says, sometimes you pray until you pray. Because sometimes when we get ready to pray, we ain't got nothing in us to pray, right? Man, we're mad, we're angry, we're afraid, we're confused, whatever it is. Sometimes you pray until you pray. And if you've ever done that, you know what happens. Because that's what happened to me at the sink, you know. The first time, I'm like, don't keep him in perfect peace. Who's my? But you know, by about the fifth or sixth time, I was like, thou will keep him in perfect peace. You, you, you do that, God. You, you calm our hearts. You help us rise above. Is there something that's keeping you down right now? Is there something in your life that is making you feel like a spiritual prisoner? I know this advice sounds crazy, but James says, wash your hands. He says, be miserable with your sin. He says, humble yourself in the presence of God. And he says, God will exalt you. He'll, he'll lift you up over the problem. And, and let me remind you too, it may be that other people are sinning against you more than you're sinning against them. It just don't matter. 
The call is for us to be miserable with our sin. James says that's how you rise above. You humble yourself. You make God the center of your universe. And God has designed that as the way that he will help you rise above. Colonel James Irwin was an astronaut. He was part of the Apollo 15 crew, the crew that made the successful walk on the moon. Years after his mission, this is what Colonel Irwin said. As I was returning to earth, I realized that I was a servant of not a celebrity. So I'm here as God's servant on planet Earth to share what I have experienced that others might know the glory of God. Keeping your heart clean, washing your hands, humbling yourself before God, being miserable over your sin, all of those things have one goal. And that goal is the glory and the fame of God. So, for that problem in life, for that difficult decision, for the sake of that problem, for the sake of that decision, for the sake of the sleepless night, for the sake of your family, for the sake of your church, for the sake of this community, for the sake of our country, for the sake of our world, for the sake of the lost, for the sake of your own soul, I leave us with one simple question. Is the fame and glory of God your goal? Is the fame and glory of God your goal? If so, you have just discovered one of the biggest problem-solving, decision-making helps in the world.